your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Bowers awaits the shotgun snap, sends the tight end motion. They roll right. Bowers throws pass. Is knocked away. Eli Sullivan knocks the football away, and the Huskers have a goal line stand, taking over the one. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Yep, we're here, both of us tonight. After Ben was playing around last night, decided to come back and do a little show. Playing around, huh? <laughs> that was your, I, you were playing games. I wasn't, were pl- I wasn't playing at all. <laughs> uh, you, were, you, were, uh, you and uh, Jeremiah Searles were overseeing the Madden tournament. Right. Yes, we were. They put us in charge of telling people what uh, what was happening uh, in that tournament. Um, yeah, I was not. I was not invited to participate in the tournament. And uh, after watching some of the some of the players last night, that's probably a good thing. Did you see some pretty good uh, pretty good action? We saw some good action. We saw some uh, some pretty good exploitation of uh, games artificial intelligence the old ai that i don't know that i would have been able to combat only people that play that game uh you know that at that level um can can, can learn those kind of tricks that, that I, I wouldn't have been able to stop that's for sure all right well good to have you back uh, last night we we let off the show with comments from the head football coach he met yesterday with members of the omaha world herald of the lincoln journal star we talked mostly last night about the testing results which the coach was forthright coming up about over 250 tests taken for COVID-19. They had a handful of positives, eight total on campus, six involved with a football team, two that were not involved with a football team. But uh, And the longest quarantine time for someone was 27 days. So really good stuff. But, Ben, I want to get into a quote that, that he had about Adrian Martinez last night. When he was asked about his play in his sophomore year compared to his freshman year, here was the head coach. Quote, he came in in his first year and had to compete for that spot, and he looked like a competitor every single day in practice. Year two, I think because of the situation, he was able to put it in cruise control a little, and I think that showed up on the field a little more. That's not to put everything on him, but I don't think he'll be lax in his preparation ever Again, what would you make of that quote about Adrian Martinez from the head coach? I mean, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know that that's entirely off script of what our assessment of Adrian has been. I mean, you couple that in with, with the injuries and the, and the lack of playmakers around him on offense. I think uh, one thing that, uh, that we uh, maybe did, didn't take as much uh, stock in is, you know, Adrian's human. I mean, he he's a 19-year-old who came in as a freshman, won the job, and uh, for as mature as he is and level-headed as he is, it it's inconceivable to me that you you not let all of the the talk in the off season affect you uh, in some way. You know, affect the way that you approach your business, affect the way that uh, just your mental state, and you know it. When you have that much success as a freshman, it's easy to to lean on that and and think that maybe you don't need to do things uh, the same way or with the same intensity all the time. And I think you know that was a big learning experience for Adrian last year. Yeah, I think there's a kind of a feeling that you've arrived, right? I mean, you you, you hey, I've got this. I did it. I, I I've got this, and not try to keep getting better because now 
your opponents have a playbook on you. But he was clearly the starter last year. There was no doubt about it. And I think the feeling from the coaches going into this camp is going to be you're going to get pushed. You're probably still the guy, but if you don't play well, Luke McCaffrey's on your heels, Logan Smothers might be on your heels, you better play. The coach also did say, hey, we didn't have enough around him. We didn't have enough guys around him to make it hurt for other teams. There were injury situations, new center, all that factored into it. But I thought the, the, the comment about being lax in his preparation was an interesting one and hopefully a lesson learned from Adrian Martinez because I think we'll all admit, even those who maybe aren't Adrian's biggest fans will admit, when he's good, he's really good. And he was at a lot of times during that freshman year, he was really, really good. So I, I, I'm, I'm anxious for that to all get going uh, for uh, Adrian here as now a junior and more than likely going to be a captain of this football team. Also, uh, last week Bill Moose ha- talked to some of the, the writers around the state, and he's catching a little bit of heat, Ben, about – People said, all right, expectations for this year. And he said, I'm sticking with what I said last summer. And to remind everybody what Bill Moose said last summer when he goes, what are are your expectations? He said, I want us to get to those six wins, and I want us to get into a bowl game. And Bill Moose has repeated that statement again this year. That upsets some people because they think Husker football should be at a higher level. Uh, but we're not, and that, that's the stark reality is for three straight years, we haven't been six-win good enough to get ourselves into postseason play, and while we all hope it's much more than six in this fall if we get to play, I think the step one is make sure you're, you get yourself into postseason play and have some extra practice time. Yeah, I mean, you got to walk before you can run, and at this stage, Nebraska needs to crawl before they can walk, and I, I think, you know, you can't – that's fine that people have that expectation for the program but uh from what we've seen the last few years be prepared to to put your put yourself through through a lot of disappointment of not meeting those expectations again especially um nebraska considering nebraska doesn't have the same schedule makeup as they did last year that was a little more forgiving than this year's slate is and you know i think we all kind of are at the point now where we don't take bowl games for granted anymore uh, I don't think Nebraska by any means wants to be one of those five and seven teams that backs their way into a bowl game uh, like they did a few years ago. But I think, you know, earning that six win margin and uh, that that needs to be your first goal. I mean, obviously, as within the within the walls of the locker room, you want to win the West. You want a chance to win a Big Ten championship and you want to win every game that you play. But let's start with, you know, playing it to Christmas let's let's try not not being at home for Christmas but not worrying about practices or anything like that um, you know it's time for this team to take the next step I don't know how much more uh, this fan base can take of not playing in a bowl game especially considering how many of those things there are and watching teams that you know Nebraska is better than every single year qualify for bowl games and Nebraska is not one of those teams so I think that's that's got to be the, the mindset nobody wants to to continuously watch a six and six team but i don't want to watch a four and eight team anymore i don't want to watch a five and seven team anymore and um you know i think uh you know there were plenty of instances last year where nebraska uh could have been a bowl team they you know a few plays here and there and different games and they are six potentially a seven win team but 
they they had too many losing football plays when it mattered, and the other team w- was able to to win a lot of those games, and and that's what we need to see. That's the next step for this program, Greg. That and that that might yield six wins, that might yield eight wins, but playing winning football when it matters, there are going to be Saturdays where you show up and you just get thumped. You know, Ohio State last year came in and hit Nebraska in the mouth. That's going to happen. You're you're going to lose games, but. There are also going to be games that are 50-50 swing games that Nebraska's been on the losing end of far too many times. The Colorado game, the Indiana game, I mean, just the list goes on and on. Really, the only one that comes to mind that they won was the Illinois game, maybe the Northwestern game that they were, you know, 50-50 games that Nebraska ended up winning. But, you know, I feel like there were a lot of times last year uh, where Nebraska was in position to win a game. And, and how about Iowa? You know, you're on the four. Yeah, I mean the Iowa game was was is certainly you have that, that, the football late, you have the football late against Iowa, and you can't go down at least kill the clock and get it to overtime. Yeah, so I think they, I mean there are plenty of instances where Nebraska has has shown that they're bowl capable, but it's about finishing, it's about making those winning plays, it's not letting kickoff return touchdowns, it's not you know those fifteen yard personal fouls, it's not you know throwing interceptions or whatever whatever the, the play may be uh a flea flicker against colorado um you know the 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 mishandled snaps the the inconsistencies of running the football all those things greg lead into not making a bowl game and and so i think you know bill moose is is setting the standard of okay we need to at least get there and once we get there then we think about taking the next step as a program you're ready to cover one of these bowl games right i mean you've heard about them (laughs) are they just are they mythical and out there and you can't grab them yeah yeah, it's like it's like that unicorn, right? Or, yeah. or, or I'm hunting Nessie. That's what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to diagnose the pictures and find out if they're even real. I've been told they're real, but you know, we'll we'll, we'll wait and see if they actually are. And hopefully, this year we even get the opportunity to reach that goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah no doubt. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been on some of the boards, and some of the people feel like the athletic director is not setting the bar high enough. But I think you're. Your point about we need to walk before we can run. And when you haven't been in a bowl game for three years, and I can't believe every time I say that, I can't believe that I'm saying that. But that's the facts. That's the reality of the situation that Nebraska has not been bowling in three consecutive football seasons. So to just expect a magic wand to come and all of a sudden be nine and two or nine and three and ten, and, that'd be great. But I don't know that that's realistic until we kind of stair step our way up to the top of this thing. The Big Ten Blitz, Minnesota. And here to talk about the Gophers, Andy Greeter from the St. Paul Pioneer Press. Andy, great to have you with us. What what are the Gophers doing? Are they doing the voluntary workouts? Give, give me the update. Yeah, they have been doing voluntary workouts uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, but they haven't shared any numbers on COVID-19 positive tests. So a lot of people are wondering where they are when it comes to positive tests and how uh, tenuous those workouts are, as we've seen around the country at Boise State, K-State, Houston, that have had to shut down. We are, we're kind of in the dark, but it sounds like they're still going on with workouts. Andy, the spring ball got wiped away, obviously. What were going to be some of the questions hopefully answered during spring practice for the Gophers? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest question was who's going to replace uh, Tyler Johnson, the wide receiver. Uh, Rash- Rashad Bateman was the Big Ten receiver of the year. Uh, and those two guys were quite the duo. It was difficult for other teams to, to take out one of them because the other one would hurt you. Uh, so that leads into kind of the current event of 
of what J.D. Spielman is going to do. I mean, obviously, he went to high school in Minnesota. is close to uh, some Gopher players. Uh, P.J. Fleck is a big fan, and obviously, he is has left Nebraska, and the Gophers are, are a potential contender for him. Uh, we'll see if they're able to get him or not. But, yeah, wide receiver was a big uh, question mark that they had to fill. And then Antoine Winfield Jr., obviously, uh, you know, a unanimous All-American at safety. Uh, they've got a four-star guy in Tyler Dubin who they're high on. Uh, but we need to see more from him. So those are two major storylines going into spring uh, that never was. What a year. 11-win season last year for P.J. Fleck. And, and now they won't sneak up on people. And I don't know they did so much late last year either. But last year was a magical year for them. Sometimes the encore can be yeah. difficult to do. What, what kind of mindset do you think he's trying to instill in the guys here in the offseason? Yeah, I think, you know, this is the, the new expectation. Um, you know, they don't want to come down from this. Um, so, obviously, it's it's trying to maintain that. It's trying to perform when the expectation is there. Like you said, no one uh, is going to take them lightly now. Um, you know, they've got nine offensive starters coming back and, and four on defense. Uh, so, there's a little bit more of something to prove defensively. Uh, but, yeah, it's just kind of, you know, kind of continue that upward trajectory. How, how much attention did P.J. get in the coaching carousel back in December? Was there ever a thought he might hit the door for a Florida State or somewhere like that? Uh, well, that would, that would have been in November. And, and, yes, Florida State did come and inquire about P.J. Fleck. And, and that same week that they inquired about him, he was signed to a seven-year extension and got a, a million-dollar raise. That was right before the the, uh, the Penn State game. And, and then they beat it. You know, the number four Disney uh, Lions, and it was kind of right that he deserved it. So, yeah, he was uh, kind of – he was a candidate always to get an extension uh, just because, you know, they always want to be there for, you know, more than four years to be able to tell recruits that. Um, so he was in line for an extension regardless, but it came sooner, and it maybe was a little bit more just given the, the hot start they had. Andy, it seems kind of ludicrous that a year ago I could have asked you about the quarterback spot. It would have been a little bit undecided. Tanner Morgan yeah. was flat brilliant last year. He's got to have a lock on that job. What about behind him building some depth behind Morgan? Yeah, I mean, Zach Annick said uh, was the starter uh, before uh, Tanner Morgan seized the job when Zach Annick said got hurt. So, yeah, I mean, it was very much an open question last spring. It was very much an open question going into fall camp. And Zach Annick said who beat Tanner Morgan for the job in 2018, uh, broke his foot and was out for the year. So it made the, the quarterback battle moot. But you know, he's you know started, I think, seven games. He started in Lincoln uh, in 2018 and was knocked out uh, with a concussion, I think, at halftime. Uh, and that's when Tanner Morgan sees the spotlight and hasn't let go since. And I think he's something, you know, like 14 and three as a starter since then. So, yeah, I mean, Zach Annick said they've got some young guys. Uh, Jacob Clark, a guy that they got uh, over Iowa uh, from Rockwall, Texas. Uh, Cole Kramer, uh, who's a, another Eden Prairie kid who, you know, knows J.D. Spielman as well. And, and they've got a four-star uh, recruit coming into the 2021 class. So they're trying to build depth because that's been a spot where the Gophers have had, hadn't had any real success for decades. Andy Creeter of the St. Paul Pioneer Press. Andy, we appreciate it. Stay healthy. Have a good summer. Yep, you too. Yep. Maryland.
And here to talk to the Terp about the Terps, Jeff Ehrman from Maryland 24-7, about to go into year two under Coach Loxley. What progress did you feel like, Jeff, that he made in year one? Did he stabilize things after just all kinds of chaos with that program the previous year? Yeah, the results on the field weren't very good, obviously. They got off to that hot start, and then the, the wheels just completely fell off. But I think, you know, more so than stabilizing, he kind of – uh, rebuilt the roster, you know, basically got rid of, uh, a, I don't want to say a group, but a, a large number of guys who I don't think kind of fit his philosophy or, or fit his view of uh, the commitment needed to winning. Uh, started recruiting, obviously, a lot better. They've got their best class in years so far signed up. So, you know, this this year is also looking like another rebuilding year, but mostly, you know, the year and a half or so that he's been there has been dedicated to uh, just overhauling the whole program, basically. Jeff, do you see them settling on a quarterback? Is there going to be a clear-cut guy in your eyes when if we tee this thing up in the fall? Well, it depends. You know, obviously they got Talia Tag- Tagovailoa from Alabama. Uh, if he's eligible, he's the clear odds-on favorite. He's applying for an NCAA waiver, so he doesn't have to sit out this year. I think he's got, you know, they feel like anyway he's got a decent chance. So if he gets that waiver, you know, he's the favorite. If not, then it's a two-man race between Josh Jackson, who struggled last year, and Lance Jean, a former four-star recruit who showed a little bit of promise last year but really didn't play enough to take any real conclusion away from what he did. So, you know, it's complicated, long story short. Okay, if they had had a spring practice, what were they hoping to – Accomplish. What were they hoping to get answers to if we if they'd had the whole spring? Depth, I think, would be would be the biggest thing they were looking at. You know, they didn't have really any of it last year. Uh, played a lot of young guys, so I think that would be the biggest thing is depth and seeing some of those young guys who played last year uh, take steps into like a two deep kind of role, and then obviously, you know, both the quarterback situation, the offensive line situation. And, and the defense, a lot of things needed improvement from last year, which is always the case when you go three and nine. All right, your your area area has really been hit hard by COVID. Is the team doing voluntary workouts? Give me what what's happening with the team right now. Yeah, they've done a stellar job of keeping everyone safe and following uh, public protocol. You know, they tested. They announced last Friday that all 105 athletes on campus most of them being football players tested negative not a single positive test so uh they're moving more toward group activities right now you know the first few weeks obviously were individual they're not having team practices or anything like that but you know with with that good news that that no one tested positive for the virus i think you'll see them maybe have a slight advantage over some other schools that probably are moving a little slower or having to quarantine a lot of players and things like that Oh, that is great news. Jeff Herman from Maryland 24-7. Jeff, we appreciate it. Stay healthy. Have a good summer. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Wisconsin. Time to talk Wisconsin Badgers with our good friend Jesse Temple from The Athletic. Jesse, uh, let's just start first with a status report, how things are going up in Madison with the uncertain times and how everybody around there, fans, media, and, and team are, are handling this uh, this pandemic that we're going through right now. Well, I think the team's trying to handle it uh, as best as it can. The players are back on campus participating in voluntary off-season workouts. And, of course, the NCAA Division I Council approved uh, the six-week practice plan. So the next steps, if everyone stays healthy, are to ramp things up July 13th and then 
enhanced training July 24th and fall camp starts August 7th. So that's the plan as of now. And I think anyone who covers the sport is trying to remain optimistic that there will be a season that it will start on time, but that remains to be seen. You put out a story uh, not that long ago on The Athletic about Paul Christ and his meeting with uh, with members of the local media the first time he had done so in a few months. What did you kind of gather from the tone of the head man about how he's approaching this with his team and, and, and really how they're going to attack the, the conditioning? I have to imagine it's going to be business as usual once the once the, uh, the sessions are underway. But what was kind of the vibe you got from him when, when he spoke? Well, a lot of the conversation uh, really didn't have much to do with actual football. There's a lot of social issues taking place, and he's had many conversations with his players about uh, racial injustice and, and their place and their ability to speak out on those topics, and also just ensuring that players stay as safe as possible. Um, so the coaches right now aren't allowed to have in-person contact other than the, the strength and conditioning staff. Uh, and really, it's just trying to take advantage of the opportunities that they've been given in the hopes that they can get to that next step. And Wisconsin is in a position that a lot of other schools are in that the Badgers did not have a single spring practice. There were some schools that had an opportunity to get a few more in, but Paul Chris is not lamenting what they didn't have. All he can do right now is try to prepare them and get them ready for a full fall camp if they do indeed have that. Let's just assume for a second, Jesse, that that things are normal and, and we're having you on getting ready to talk about Wisconsin fall camp. When, when you think about the football side of things and how last year went and finished for the Badgers, what type of, of mood and attitude do you think this team would have if things were normal and, and we would head into a fall camp here in just a few weeks? I would still consider Wisconsin to be the Big Ten West favorite, and some other team is going to have to consistently beat the Badgers for me to pick against them. They've got a lot of players returning now. What you look at are the names that aren't there. Quintez Stevens, the wide receiver, one of the best that Wisconsin had in the decade. Jonathan Taylor, the two-time Doak Walker Award winner, and they don't have Tyler Biotis, who won the Remington Trophy last season for the best center in the country. And then defensively, you don't have Zach Vaughn, an All-American at outside linebacker, and inside linebacker Chris Orr. Uh, is one of the, the more vocal leaders Wisconsin has had in a long time. Having said all that, they have a lot of pieces returning. They've got a lot of quality offensive linemen that are still in the mix. They've continued to load up in recruiting at that position as well as any team in the country, I think, for what they're able to do there. And then Jack Cohn is back for his senior season at quarterback. The question is, can they have somebody that can replace the production of Jonathan Taylor? Do they have enough wide receiver pieces with Quintez Cephas gone? Uh, and defensively, how do they replace those two linebackers? But everyone else on defense is back. So I still think that this Wisconsin team is the team to beat in the West. Defensively, I think June Leonard is going to like the pieces that he has on that side of the ball. And that is one thing that other teams in the Big West, Big Ten West have become accustomed to. Wisconsin having a stout defense regardless of what they lose from year to year. Everybody's big question, and it's a question that you're going to be asked all season. You kind of mentioned mentioned it there, how they replace the production of Jonathan Taylor. Do you expect, Jesse, Wisconsin's offense to look much different without him, or are they just going to try and plug and play the next guy in there and just continue to do what they do? Well, Wisconsin running back coach John Settle said, even before the Rose Bowl, a couple days before when I had a chance to talk to him, that he'd, he had already told his returning running back, that it was going to have to be more of a by-committee approach. There's not one guy who can replicate the production of a Jonathan Taylor uh, whose numbers 
were unbelievable 2,000 yard rusher the last couple of years. Um, I think they've got some pretty good pieces, but there's there are question marks there. The guy that I think is in position to step into that role is Nikia Watson. He was a backup last season. He's kind of a downhill, powerful runner, but he didn't get the, the number of touches that he would have if, say, Jonathan Taylor wasn't carrying 300 times. Uh, so then there are a bunch of young guys that have not proven themselves. Isaac Arendo is one of the fastest players on the team. He's a converted wide receiver. Julius Davis was injured last year, so he didn't play at all during his redshirt season, but he's one of the better in-state running backs to come through in a long time. And they have Jalen Berger, who's a four-star running back from New Jersey, who's coming in in this 2020 recruiting class. A really important get for Wisconsin in recruiting. And then they still have Garrett Groshek, who's a senior leader, uh, and he could be more of an every-down tailback. I think he'll be more of a third-down guy. So those are the players that we're looking at for Wisconsin. It's just a matter of who's able to step up and how many guys John Settle trusts on the field. Jesse Temple from The Athletic is our guest here on The Blitz. Let's hope the next time we talk, Jesse, it's about fall camp and not uh, what what happens next or hypothesizing or theorizing what this season may look like. Let's hope things continue uh, and, and start to get better and, and turn and turn direction, and we can have football here in a few months. It was nice catching up with you, man. Hope everything's going well with you and everything's healthy. Thanks so much for jumping on with us tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Take care. We think them up. We count them down. It's Top 10 Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. Brought to you by Union Bank and Trust at Union Bank and Trust. All your banking needs are taken care of by real people who really care. Stop by and you'll see that you belong here. Union Bank and Trust member FDIC. We came up with this also on the SNBL stream earlier today. Baseball slang. And boy, baseball more than any other sport and maybe all sports combined. Baseball has slang up and down the up and down the world. I mean, it, 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 can you guys think of any other sport that has this much slang? No, hmm. can't. Close. There's a, it, it, it's it's one of those deals where like if you're not if you're not a baseball guy, like you, it just doesn't make sense. Some of the words that come out of your mouth. All right, Austin. I'm gonna let you lead us off since you and I kind of cooked this one up lead us off is that my number 10 <laughs> no it's not it is baseball slang though number 10 for me i've got around the horn i just yeah. think this one's really cool it, you know it originates in baseball like ben said if you just say around the horn in casual conversation people might not know what it is but you know if you strike someone out your catcher throws it down to third then to short second third back to the pitcher just a really cool little way to keep fielders involved my my little league teams probably should have done that so our second baseman zach wasn't picking his belly button went between batters but hey they didn't teach us that at that age but still a pretty cool phrase very good all right my number 10 is ace that's what you call your best starting pitcher is your ace how it came to be played i guess it comes off of cards where the ace is the dominant card in the deck of cards so ace to me total baseball slang is my number 10 all right, my number 10 is one that it's such a common baseball phrase, but, like, if I were to say it with my wife, we were watching a game, and I said this, she would have no idea what the heck I'm talking about, and that's boots it. Like, like everybody that's been around <laughs> baseball knows what boots it means. But yeah. if somebody has never played baseball before that is very fluent in the English language and you hear the word boots when it hits off their glove and – and ricochets somewhere else. They're looking at you, going, "What do you mean? It hit his glove, not his not his foot or his boot." But uh, to me, it's such a basic one. But at the same time, like 
you know, when you when you hear someone say boots it, you almost know exactly how the ball ricochets. Yeah. But, if, but then you, if you were to actually describe, you know, a ground ball hits a third off of his glove, dribbles boots off it. to his left, you know, that boots <laughs> it is just so much more efficient to say. And everybody knows what you're talking about. Everyone Love it. watch or listen to a baseball game, that is. Yes. So, number nine for me, well, if you, if you know what booting it looks like, you know what a fungo sounds like. So that's the term mm. for the bat that coaches use for in and out or just during practice. So it's a lighter, skinnier bat. You know, if you drop that in casual conversation, I'm going to get a fungo today. Let's go hit the fungo. No one's going to know what that means. But if you've played baseball, you've been around a field, you know just how different a fungo sounds, you know what you're supposed to use it for, and you know you never swing that against live pitching. And it's a thing where um, it doesn't even need to be a fungo. Like fungo is more of just like a it's like a descript it's like it's an action it's almost like a like a verb right like be, who's yeah. on who's on fungos today which means you know you don't necessarily need to use a fungo but you know the fungo is the guy that's hitting ground balls to the infielders during bp like right. so who's on fungos today like it's it's also like an action word as well very good all right my number nine free baseball now i say that to you guys you know that means the game is going extra innings but i mean who I don't know the origination of free baseball, but I, I like it, and I used it, and I use it now on the, on the games. But uh, free baseball means extra inning games. Yeah, you pay for <laughs> nine. Your ticket pays for nine. I guess you get more. Yeah, there you go. My number nine is probably a little higher on your list. It's it's not one of my favorites, but it's to me it's like it, it's such an it's such an old man like phrase. Like I, I just associate this with baseball in like the '60s and the '70s ducks on the pond like that's not something that you hear that's not something you hear a lot of high school kids chatter from the dugout you don't hear that a lot in college who you hear it from is the guy uh you know scoring the game with his headphones on in the fifth row all right steve you got ducks on the pond like that's 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 who it comes from so just for that reason it's a little lower on my list love it it's one of my favorite baseballism shirts great symbol is a nice little light blue little ripples three ducks on it's pretty great number eight for me i've got chin music you know there's plenty of names for a fastball up and in but i think chin music's the best so we've all heard you know what a fastball whizzing past us sounds like it's it's cool it's frightening and it doesn't sound all that intimidating but if you're throwing chin music it's an intimidation technique and it makes whatever happens next 45 percent more epic at least very good i have something similar later because there's a lot of different term terminology for that uh my number are we at eight? Yeah, my number eight is cleanup hitter, which is the fourth guy in your batting order. Again, I, apparently, if everybody gets on base in front of him, he can clean the bases with a base hit. So cleanup hitter slang for me is at number eight. Awesome. All right, my number eight is another one that, it, 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 to me, it kind of gets glossed over. Uh, like, it's not, it's not really like a – like the greatest saying in the world but it's it's it is the mo one of the most popular baseballisms out there and, and everybody around the sport knows what it is can of corn it's a can of corn i mean you just it, it's a w lazy fly ball that that needs to be caught and um you know it, it, what's it it comes back from the the guys stocking the shelves and they 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 the the, the throw the canned vegetable or whatever would fall in their apron isn't that where that comes from yeah. just a yep. just a little lazy fly ball that that needs to be caught so can of corn for me number eight they would like yank it off the top shelf with like a an umbrella hook or something then have to catch it in their apron 
Yeah. That's where it comes yeah. from. So number seven is one that's been outlawed in a couple ways. I've got the loogie here at number seven. So nice. Loogies are obviously <laughs> outlawed with the whole coronavirus thing going around. They aren't allowed to spit. But in this context, it's the lefty one out guy. Have your lefty specialist. He's going to throw a pretty hard breaking ball. It's going to go away from the lefties. A fastball that's going to look a little bit different. Now, they're not quite extinct, but they're going extinct with baseball's three batter or end of an inning rule. So if you get a lefty as the last batter of the inning, you can still have your loogie. But, you know, people don't think of a loogie as a person. You hear it, you think of spit out in the cornfield. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a lefty one out guy. That's all it is in baseball. When you think of that term in baseball, does somebody come to mind? Tim Collins. Just Tim Collins? Who was the was it John Franco? Who was the guy for the Mets that did it seem like a uh, Franco was a lefty, but he was a legit closer for a while. There there's been a handful of guys that you just come to mind like oh, that's all that guy Javier is Lopez. with left. Yeah. Ben, did I stump you on that? I'm trying to think. Like I mean there's because of roles, right? I mean you don't really have yeah. like that we have setup guys now, we've got the 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 H D H, we've got the Holland, Davis, Herrera. So it's like it's harder and harder to find that just that guy that fits that description because of how much roles have right. I think I think ten years ago there there's a hundred of them that you could name. Yeah. Yeah. All right, my number seven, uh, Austin had a similar version of this at eight, and I'm going with high cheese. Uh, you good chin music, high cheese is usually a fastball up and in on a hitter where they got to get out of their way, spin their head back. So I'm going high cheese for me at seven. All right, we'll have another version of that here on my list coming <laughs> up here in just a little bit. My number seven is is vulgar and violent when you actually think about the contents, but twin killing, uh, you know, that's a it's a, obviously a term for a double play, but uh, a twin killing, I mean, killing is such a a strong word to use but again it, as a baseball someone within baseball you don't ins- incorporate a killing with actual violence but if you were sitting with an english major that had never watched a baseball game before and you said ah that was a bad twin killing they're looking at you going well what does that mean what? <laughs> so, i've got a, i've got twin killing here at number seven cool we, we don't actually execute the base runners or the hitters that hit it yeah twin killings don't as work. much as we may want to eugenio suarez <laughs> Mr. GIDP himself. All right, number six for me, I've got frozen rope here at number six. Very baseball specific. It just sounds cool. You know, those are line drives that you square up right back up the middle or that you typically they're line drives to your pole side that fielder doesn't have a chance to get a glove on, not any chance to get in front of. But I found it funny that not even hockey uses the term frozen rope. It's just a baseball thing. Huh. Should be in hockey. Somebody yeah. rips a, you know, slap shot. But all right, my number six is Tater. Trying to come up yeah. with a different name for home runs, a Tater. I don't know that it is used as much anymore, but it's something I grew up with. So Tater, at number six for me. I just uh, I should probably should have prefaced this. I left all the words for home run off my list just because Did there's you? so many of them. Nuke, yeah. yak, bomb, moonshot. I mean, there's just Dinger. so many of them that that you, you could have made a top ten list just for that. So yeah, j- just for that, I just I left all those off because I wouldn't know which one to pick. Uh, my number six got him fishing. Uh, again, uh, you know, it's uh, you, you think of a, associate baseball swing, right? You're swinging a bat. 
don't understand necessarily where the fishing comes from um you know because unless you're unless you're just a terrible fisherman you know you're not coming up with fish but fishing usually implies you're catching something um swing and a, and a miss and a got him fishing in baseball implies that you're definitely not coming up with that you're coming up empty on that swinging at a ball way out of the strike zone so got him fishing for me number six whenever i hear got him fishing it's typically used with balls that are low and away you know, mm-hmm. low curveballs low sliders but that's like the opposite of a fishing motion fishing typically go yeah top, overhand you know? right right i've never oxymoron that. a little bit very much so all right into the top five here this is where i have the sombrero uh so you can wear a golden platinum or a titanium sombrero and obviously that sounds like a good time to start to a party <laughs> especially on the cinco de mayo Really, it's not, though. If you know anything about baseball, it means all you've done that day is strike out. So the golden sombrero is four, the platinum sombrero is five, and titanium is six or above. It seems funny. It seems positive. Let's get the party started. It is very much not. Or you have the Gary Sanchez sombrero, which was like, (laughs) what, eight? Wasn't it eight Ks? I think Sanchez had seven and Stanton had eight that game, yeah. Ouch. That'll, that'll, uh, That'll humble you, right? That kind of a day? <laughs> Terrible. All right, my number, my number five was mentioned by Ben at eight. And here's where I've got can of corn at my number five. Just classic, utter classic. All right, my number five, this is the, the third adjective we have to describe a, a ball that's high and tight on a batter. I've got Buzz the Tower here at number five. Uh, <laughs> obviously, people are going to think of the movie Top Gun when, when uh, the, you know, their Mavericks coming in flying a little low. Whoa, Buzz the Tower, says Goose, but... Um, yeah, Buzz the Tower for me is one of my favorite ones to use in-game on a, on, a, on a fastball high and tight. But, again, very confusing to those that don't know baseball, but to those that know baseball know exactly what that means. That shot in the movie, every time the guy's sipping his coffee, do you ever notice that? Oh, yeah. Every time there's the Buzz the Tower, somebody's taking a sip of coffee. <laughs> Whole point. <laughs> I know. All right, number four for me is walk-off. It's both exactly what it sounds like and nothing what it sounds like. So it's the losing team that's doing the the walking off. You know, they're trudging off very dejectedly, but it's the the home team that's hit the walk off. And they're the ones that are storming onto the field, dog piling, being exuberant. And, you know, it's a a game winning play, but only really baseball has a, a term for it besides game winning. Walk off is just so baseball. It's stuck for a while and you hear walk off, your mind just goes straight to baseball. And I said this on the stream today, (laughs) that I think walk-off is really something that's kind of come about in the last 20 years or so. I don't remember that term being used a lot when I was young growing up. It certainly has now, and you're right, it is cool. All right, my number four, battery. I mean, how how did we come up with the pitcher and catcher's tonight's battery for the the Huskers or whatever but boy we sure did and it's it's certainly a baseball terminology again a bit of an oxymoron the battery with the pitcher and the catcher you'd think the battery has something to do with the hitter the batter but no it <laughs> right. doesn't yeah. it absolutely doesn't um, okay my number four is a pitching one and again I think this is something that maybe not even 20 years you might even go back five years to 10 years at most for this one to gain the popularity but what a pitcher wants to do, they want to paint the black. I mean, you mm. you think about what what that means. It means you're throwing that, you know, for everybody that has played Little League on those big old home plates they used to use, you know, that inch <laughs> black strip all the way around that home plate. And, you know, if you're if you're getting the black, the black call, it means you're just a little bit outside of that white part of the plate. 
and when you're painting it, it means you're just taking that brush stroke right on the edge. Uh, really tough, tough pitches to hit. So um, as a pitcher, you want to paint the black, but you also want to make sure that you're getting the black calls with, uh, with the home plate umpire back behind home plate. So I got paint the black here at number four. Moving on to the top three, I've got cannon here at number three. Now, it's not just a baseball term, but when you hear the word cannon, you know, you just think of guys who have a cannon. Alex Gordon, Ioannis Cespedes, Nolan Arenado, Manny Machado, Bo Jackson, Vlad Guerrero. You just know it when you see it. A guy throws hard, he throws accurate, and you just don't run on him. You, You just don't test him. Did you, throw a, did you throw a catcher in there? There's got to be a catcher, right, that's got a cannon? Salvador Perez, obviously. Yeah, he does. Yeah, that would be good. He went in there. All right, uh, my number three, Austin had earlier. I was hoping you would, nobody would have this, but I, here's golden sombrero for me, too. I love that terminology, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's certainly unique to baseball. So golden sombrero is my three. It sounds fun to say, but there's nothing more insulting than when someone talks yeah. about one of your games and, hey, weren't you wearing the golden sombrero? And nothing ticks you off more as a batter when someone wants to bring attention to that. <laughs> My number three is another one that I love to use, and I think it's another one that is more recent. I'd say in the last five to ten years, how do we describe great defensive plays? He's flashing the leather, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, flashing for multiple reasons. A lot of times they're, they're diving one way or another, so they're flicking that glove out to where they're flashing you the palm of their glove. And obviously most of us know that gloves are made of some form of leather. So flashing the leather is a very popular term now that maybe wasn't so much 10, 15 years ago. But now everyone knows what it means and everyone uses it. Absolutely. That was a tough cut from my list. Number two for me, though, I've got grand slam. You know, there aren't four run homers in baseball. They're just grand slams. Just for as long as baseball has been around, we haven't had four run homers. They're grand slams. I know that's taken on a life outside of baseball too. you know, a grand slam higher. You know, it's absolutely superb. It's the top you could possibly do. Tennis golf you know you win all the majors and all that stuff you hit a grand slam so the fact that it's become so ubiquitous to baseball and that it's taken over the four run home run but it's also used outside of that that's why it elevates itself to my number two restaurants have used it for like their breakfast yeah you order the grand slam that means two eggs over easy bacon and toast whatever whatever may be all right my number two band box which is a term for a small ballpark their Huskers are playing tonight in this little band box tonight. So, uh, tiny ballpark. You don't hear it a lot, but every now and then the term comes out. The, the one ballpark that I that I think of when I hear band box, Greg, is Allie P. Reynolds at Oklahoma State. Oh, yeah. You know, the place yeah. was a freaking launching pad. Uh, all right, my number two, I was a little surprised this one wasn't my number one, to be honest with you. This was the first one that, that I thought of. I'm not sure it's on your guys' list. I got the old ugly finder here at number two. Uh, again, not one that you hear very often, but it may be confusing to a lot, but a hard hit ball into the stands, and it's an ugly finder uh, for multiple reasons. You know, it hits you, it's going to make you ugly with the black and blue mark that it leaves <laughs> on your face. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately in the sport, we're not having very many ugly finders because of the nets that they have um, yeah. protecting the fans. But great term, and, and when everybody ends up being okay, it's, it, can, it can be quite funny. So I've got the ugly finder here at number two. All right, my number one has been said. Greg started his list with it. I've got ace up here at number one. I just think there's something so cool about being called the ace. There's just something so intimidating about it. If you're going up against it, you know you're in for a tough time. If you're throwing yours, you're supremely confident. Just all those feelings, all those emotions 
packed into three little letters, an all-business, short, sweet name for an all-business type of player. Sweet. All right, very good. My number one, I tip of a cap to my old colleague, Adrian Fiala. Tools of Ignorance is my number one. It's the catching gear, the mask, the, you know, the chest protector, the shin guards, all that. Adrian always used to say Tools of Ignorance. Love that terminology. It's my number one. Very aptly named and, and makes total sense when you think about it, uh, those crazy guys behind the plate. My number one was mentioned by Austin uh, at his number eight and has another to do with the high fastball. I've got chin music here at number one. It's such a, a, such a fluid term. It sounds so good together. Plus, I'm a wrestling guy, and the sweet chin music by, by Bret Hart was his finishing move, putting his heel right under someone's throat, the sweet chin music, and I think about that. Uh, every time that I use it. And I think it's just such a, a cool baseball phrase. And give him a little chin music, and, um, you know, everybody knows what you're talking about. So that's my number one. Very nice. And back when the Huskers were still playing baseball back in February and early March, you, Ben McLaughlin, along with Nick Canley, had a chance to see Spencer Torkelson, the Arizona State slugger, who then a couple months later became the number one pick in the draft of the Detroit Tigers. He uh, became a wealthy man today, signed a record contract of $8.4 million. It eclipses the record set last year by Adley Rutschman, another guy that Huskers saw play a couple different times, the catcher from Oregon State who signed with the Orioles for 8.1. How about 8.4 for Spencer Torkelson? Ugh, that's just crazy. Um, yeah, he's a special player. He's one of those guys that you watch and uh, you, you just see things that you don't normally see. I've got a statistic on him that I used in that series. I, I've got my uh, – I'm digging through my old game prep notes here real quick. I, I've got it all still saved on my computer. Uh, okay, here we go. So entering that series with Nebraska, he had played in 31 series in his college career, 31, all the way back to a freshman. He hit a home run in 25 of the of 31 wow. of the series. So wow. every series but six, he hit a home run. And then another interesting side note, and this is this is pretty impressive when you think about it, Greg. Not not even I have been to every Big Ten park yet, and I've done uh, baseball for I don't know six years or something like that. Uh, I haven't even been to all the Big Ten parks, but Spencer Torkelson hit a home run in every Pac-12 ballpark in his career. So just a couple of just stupid numbers that he had. Um, and then he, he did homer in that series with Nebraska, so I guess you could make it 26 of 32, which Nebraska would take that percentage from the free throw line <laughs> uh, with how many home runs that that guy hit in a series. So just, just crazy. I mean, he had a ball, Greg, that was hit to right center field and um, – you could tell it was going to get out, but I'm like, yeah, that was that was pretty weak. He didn't, I mean, he didn't. Ball flies out; it wouldn't really hit that well. It didn't it didn't look great off the bat, and then you just see where that thing landed, like it landed like over the batter's eye in right center field, oh. like, and I think the fence was like 390, and it, and it cleared it by 60 feet, and it did not look like it was hit well at all, like. I, I think I even described in the call, I'm like, yeah, I'm a little surprised that that one got out. And 
Nick looked at me like, are you crazy? Did you see where that thing landed? <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, that was, that was crushed. But it, he's just got – my point was it's so effortless. Like, usually when, when some guys hit home runs, you can tell that they're Scott Schreiber hacking that thing and trying to get it over the fence. It, to him, he was just, you know, middle-op approach. And the thing just happened to go 440 feet uh, to the opposite field. It was remarkable, and we brought this up when the draft was going on a couple of weeks ago, that Nebraska only played 15 baseball games this spring before it got shut down. Night one of the MLB draft, which is the first round and the supplemental pick, so I think it was 36 or 37 picks, Nebraska had seen in their 15 games four of those guys that played. The catcher from Arizona, the... Well, Lofton, the shortstop from Baylor, was was one of those supplemental picks that night. And I'm drawing a blank on the other one. It might have been the kid from San Diego State, like their shortstop from San Diego State might have been their fourth one. But four out of the 36 guys on the opening night of the draft, Nebraska saw that season when they only played 15 games. It was crazy how much yeah. good talent we saw. I know it. And, and people, I always get a kick. There's always one guy on Twitter that's always like, you say that every, no matter who Nebraska plays, they've got, they're playing the best, whatever. Okay, well, you know, I, I can't argue with the stats, right? I mean, their first-round draft pick, their projected first-round draft pick. And I feel like we've, we've seen a bunch of those guys. Adley Rutschman the year before. Yeah. You saw Alex Bregman. You've seen Andrew Benintendi. We've seen some of these high-profile guys that Nebraska happened to be playing against. Yeah. Callers and guests into our show. Dot us up on our Sports Only Hotline, brought to you by the Woodhouse Auto Family, bringing you more choices in brands, locations, and service. Experience the difference. Purchase with confidence. This is Woodhouse. Fun top 10 list. So can go vote at Husker Sports on our Twitter poll for the night. Back with another hour next.